tired SLP, I know just what you need. Go grab some caffeine, find your favorite seat. It's time for coffee, tea, and three SLPs. Uh, so I'll start by reading your bio, but I'm going to make one change to it, one very important change. And that's, I'm going to add the word doctor to the beginning because you're a <laughs> doctor because you have your PhD. I do. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> okay. So let me tell you about our guests for today. Dr. Mariam L. Amin is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of South Carolina. Her research focuses on expanding the global science of communication development and disorders research. To do so, she has two intersecting research objectives. One, expanding language assessment and intervention practices for multilingual speakers in the context of family-centered care. And two, increasing access, transparency, and diversification of science in communication sciences and disorders through open science practices. Love that. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Great. So let's jump in uh, and let's start with, can you tell us about your experience working as an SLP in Lebanon? I think that will be a good foundation for our conversation today. I agree. Um, I think whenever anyone asks me about why are you here and why are you doing your research, that's always where I start. <laughs> so um, I'm originally from Lebanon. I practiced as a school-based speech language pathologist there um, before coming to the U.S. And the way it works there is different. So we do four years of undergrad. And during these four years, you do all of your clinical work. So you're doing, you're taking your um, classes and you're also applying what you're learning through practica. And then by the end of the four years, you've been exposed to a lot of clinical experiences and then you're um, certified to practice. I was going to say ready, but you're never ready, are you? <laughs> um, so then you graduate and then you start um, working as a SLP. And during my time there, I was working and then it was kind of tricky because um, we don't have a lot of resources. So the field of SLP in Lebanon is relatively new. Um, I would say it's around 20 to 30 years of existence, which in the scope of a field is young. <laughs> so um, we don't have a lot of research or, so I know here as an SLP, you can just go and purchase an assessment tool or purchase an intervention material and then you're ready to practice. Um, basically you can't do that in Lebanon. So now recently we mm -hmm. had like one standardized assessment tool for language. Uh, but that shows you like how much pressure it puts on you as a clinician. So I was really burnt out just for practicing for a year because I felt like, okay, I don't know if I'm confident in what I'm doing assessment wise. I don't know if I'm confident in what I'm doing intervention wise. We do have things that we use, but they're just research projects that students have done like at the university level and then they're widespread and people just use them. So you can imagine how unconfident you can feel with whatever you're doing so I think we're good with the dynamic assessment and all of that stuff but also it's nice to have the support of something more standard just to feel confident what you're doing so because of that um, I felt very motivated to uh, pursue my graduate 
studies and add to the literature base, particularly for Arabic speakers and for multilingual children in general. Wow, that's interesting to hear you describe a context where you don't have a lot of um, assessments that you can use or standardized evaluations that are appropriate for Arabic speakers and being an, an SLP in Lebanon. Um, and then the flip side of that is you you feel like you became maybe good at dynamic assessment because of that and some of these less formal mm -hmm. procedures. So, um, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, and I know here like there's and I know there's a lot of value in that, but also you want something just to just to feel confident because it feels very mm -hmm. unstructured, too. So I think mm -hmm. holistic having a mix of ways to get your evidence would feel much more confident than just you coming up with everything. <laughs> yeah. So was there a push to use that one standard assessment to determine your course of action with your client or student? Or was, were they more, was it a system where it was more accepting of using that dynamic assessment to determine services versus not? Well, yeah, one important distinction, I guess, between here and Lebanon is that you don't need to qualify to get services. Basically, mm -hmm. the person who decides is the SLP. So the SLP okay. sees their client. If they think there's a need, they will provide for that need. But because we don't have insurance coverage, so basically people mm -hmm. are paying out of pocket anyway. Okay. So you don't need to qualify. So there's no need to prove that this person needs services, except for usually what happens is there is someone who raises a concern. So if it's in the school, the teacher is probably concerned or the parents mentioned like, okay, they're not doing well, whatever. Or if it's, you know, a speech sound disorder, like people are not getting what he's saying. And then they send them mm -hmm. to the SLP. The assessment happens. And then as the SLP, you determine, like, do you think this is typical or do you think they would uh, benefit from extra support mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the assessment tool is kind of expensive I would say and so there there hasn't been a push to mm -hmm. using it I think people are happy that it's out there uh, but I think mm -hmm. the cost uh, barrier also prohibits people using it so mm -hmm. I think it's a good move you know to have it and like mm -hmm. we're having that um, research out there and it was mm -hmm. well studied compared to what we have um, but no, there's no mm -hmm. push, I would say. So, mm. so when, if you were to qualify a student in a school, do the parents also pay for that service? Yes. So unfortunately, oh, interesting. One the, yeah. One of the downsides is we don't have, so I know here, you know, you have the law and the law mm -hmm. says, you know, people are entitled to free education and free services. That's mm -hmm. why they need to qualify and all of that. So we don't, have that um mm -hmm. people just pay out of pocket and because of that there's a lot of inequity and in access to mm -hmm. services so you of can course. imagine you know and it's very expensive I remember like so now things change so uh, ever since I came here Lebanon has had an economic crisis so prices changed but I remember when I was there so back in the day <laughs> so not really <laughs> but just like a few years ago um mm -hmm. A family can pay up to twelve thousand to twenty thousand dollars, which is yes, a lot. Oh my god! <laughs> for a year, for a for... school year, which is oh. terrible. Yeah, Oof. 
And, you know, like here in the US and you're saying that's a lot. And in Lebanon, that's even more a lot, right. you know? So Oh, so that's 20,000 US dollars that you're yes. using. Oh my God. Wow. Wow. Um, and there's a range. Not all of them are that expensive. Like there's mm-hmm. less, but then sometimes the quality of services can also decrease because mm-hmm. then you don't have access to, like the school won't be able to purchase that assessment tool that costs $800 or so, you know, mm-hmm. that's expensive you know so there's Mm -hmm. a problem of access to services for sure Mm -hmm. the ministry of education i think recently was starting to implement a project related to special education services so i know there's some move in that direction i'm not very well informed in where that stands right now but in Mm -hmm. general it's not something that people have access to there are a lot of um NGOs and other charity services that do provide um, them for very subsidized prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's the whole range. Wow. I'm thinking especially about those families who have a child who um, might have more global needs. Uh, that I I imagine that can be really hard to navigate when the you know, the responsibility to pay for those services are all on the parent until they've tried to access other ways to fund them- themselves. That must be really challenging. Mm-hmm. A lot of them just whenever there's someone like with more, as you said, like global needs or just like more, um, there are some centers, um, mm-hmm. like special schools, and they just end up putting their kids there because then they mm-hmm. get access to all of the services there. Mm-hmm. And, okay. um, and then also the quality can differ. And you came here for your master's in SLP, right? So what was that like here coming to the States for that? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So I applied to the Fulbright scholarship and I came here on a Fulbright um, in 2017 and I went to UW-Madison for my master's. So I also had an interesting route because of my Fulbright. I was on a type of visa that does not allow me to get my clinical certification which Mm. is a little upsetting, but I was still able to take all of the clinical classes. So I took all of the coursework and I volunteered clinically, but I was not able to, you know, record or do like the practica side of things to um, get the C's here in the U.S., uh, which worked out because I ended up going the research route anyway. Um, But um, it was definitely interesting um, seeing the difference. I think one of the nice shifts, um, I think I was able to see that there are a lot of things that are just challenges in the field um, and not just issues in Lebanon, you know, so mm. assessing multilingual kids or bilingual kids, that's hard everywhere. <laughs> so I think I kind of had this perspective shift and there was a lot of exciting things that, you know, access to research here, all the resources. Um, it was great getting that um level of knowledge and expertise but at the same time I was able to see that there are things that the field is struggling with regardless of um, where you are in the world and what Mm -hmm. resources you have so that was an interesting um, shift to keep in mind thinking about both yeah and when you refer to bilingual or multilingual learners um, I know here we often think about English and Spanish as kind of the the most frequent um, languages that a, a child may speak here. In Lebanon, um, they're speaking 
Arabic, is there another language that they're also speaking there? Or um, what What would the bilingual or multilingual context look like in Lebanon? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so Arabic is the first language that everyone is exposed to, of course, if they're from Lebanon. And then uh, in the schools, you also take a second language. And this is usually English or French. So people are always exposed to both. Um, and then so in my case, I was exposed to Russian at home. So that also got me interested in languages. I'm thinking about multilingualism too. Um, and we have a lot of, you know, diaspora of people who are also like can have some minoritized languages in the context of, you know, Lebanon too. But at least Arabic, English, French, um, and sometimes people know both. Some schools give them, um, you know, both English and French. That's interesting to think about because... I feel like here, the when we talk about bilingual speakers, it's almost it's it's it shouldn't be, and it's not accurate to say this, but I feel like it's almost equated with Spanish and English. But then when we think of this in a global context, bilingualism and multilingualism it, it looks so di- so much more diverse than even just those two languages. And we're struggling here to provide good services for bilingual Spanish English children. So I see your point about the challenge being global Mm -hmm. and like even for here I think that's one of the perspective shifts that I want to do if you know hopefully I say and I do research in the context of the U.S. it's true that Spanish is one of the highest um, spoken languages here but there are a lot of other languages that um, children do speak here in the context of U.S. um, schools including Arabic and many other languages too so Uh, My hope is to be able to also focus on these um, students and be able to explore their language needs as well. That's great. And maybe that's a good segue into the next phase of your journey. So you were, you had your undergrad in Lebanon, and then you worked as an SLP in Lebanon. You came here on the Fulbright for your master's, and then you entered the PhD program. And um, I know that your dissertation was on um, family-centered care in the context of Arabic-speaking families. Can you speak about that research that you did? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I did my PhD at the University of Georgia, um, and I just finished in May. Um, so for my dissertation, I was excited that I finally got to do research in the context of Lebanon after you know being here for a couple of years. And I went to Lebanon and I collected my data there last summer. So not 2023, 2022. And I was interested in maternal linguistic input. So in the context of these Arabic speaking mothers and families, how does their natural communication at home look like? And how is that impacted by the context in which they're um, talking? So Mm. I went into the homes and I had... 10 mother-child dyads. The kids were between two to five years of age. And I wanted to see how do these moms use language across different contexts. So I had three contexts that I looked at. One of them was playing with toys. The other one was reading pictureless books. And then the third, I mean, wordless books, they had pictures. And then the third one was um, an activity of their choice. And I recorded videotaped the interactions five minutes for each context and then I was able to transcribe and analyze um, the language they used 
I looked at quantity, quality, and um, pragmatic use of language. And um, I did have a small sample size, but it was the first exploration of um, this question in Arabic speakers, to my knowledge, particularly looking at pragmatics. And it was interesting to see that um, others in my sample did use questions most frequently compared to other types of um, language functions that you could use. And that was interesting because in the literature that we see in the Western world, there's more focus on description. So describing, you know, this is a ball or this is, you know, or the boy is doing whatever. Mm -hmm. But in the context that I looked at, they were using a lot of questions. So which can include WH questions like, what is this? What is he doing? What is this color? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of um, directing the kids to answer, you know, the parents lead. Um, so that was interesting. Um, and it shows that there are definitely possibly cultural differences. Um, needs more exploration with a larger sample for sure. Um, but it shows that it's worth looking into that. And we know that um, with our younger um, children, usually we do a lot of um, parent implemented interventions. So my hope in the long run is that we're able to see what is something that's culturally relevant within the Arabic context so that whatever recommendations we give are actually suitable for what the family mm -hmm. naturally does in this mm -hmm. context. Did, I have a question. Did you also see, you know, you said that parents, um, they ask questions much more than description. Did they also give a command like, oh, say this, say that? Um, in my sample, they did not ask them to say okay. things, but I assumed mm -hmm. it's because they are already two. So it was mm -hmm. two five-year-olds. Mm -hmm. I'm curious with the younger ones. I, yeah. I, I would bet you that that would probably show up a lot. So mm -hmm. that could be an interesting yeah. thing. Yeah, <laughs> it made me think, I was just thinking about how my family interacts with little kids and they do that a lot. They do a lot of asking questions and, oh, like, here's a cake, say cake <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> um, so I was just curious if you saw that. I'm thinking we were always taught very explicitly, you know, try to move away from asking questions and encourage parents to move away from that. But I think there's a point to be made that if it is culturally appropriate to do that, then it might it might be, you know, not super fair for us to tell parents not to do that if that is their culture and how they interact with the kids of that culture. I agree. I think the problem and the motivation for me to do this research is that um, there was a very interesting article that came out in 2022, I think. Um, it was by Kid and Garcia, and they looked at um, within the child language literature across the last 40 years since we published all the literature on child language development, um, mm -hmm. what are the languages that are represented? So out mm -hmm. of the 7,000 languages in the world, only 1.5% in the literature was represented. <laughs> I know. That's so bad. <laughs> Very bad. And that's That's so scary. I know. So exactly. So everything we know, all the research mm -hmm. theories that we have are based on mm -hmm. a very non-representative sample of people's mm -hmm. experiences with language. So it's cute to English speakers too. So mm -hmm. you're right. Like that's what we know from this sample, but 
people are obviously learning language. So what's helping them right. learn language there? Yeah. And I'm thinking too about like uh, um, in Kenya, a country mm-hmm. like Kenya, where everyone knows there's a national language, Swahili, but then each tribe has their own language and kids can grow up with varying dialects of their tribal language along with various dialects of Swahili. So I think that, you know, other countries that have that kind of language diversity, what are you even doing? (laughs) What are we supposed to do? (laughs) That's, yeah, that's a lot to think about. And that's the case, and I'm sure in so many other like countries too, you're Mm -hmm. right. So that definitely adds to (laughs) Mm -hmm. the layer of things to explore. This also makes me think about culturally responsive care in a broader way, because I feel like often when we hear that term, we think of things like making sure you are using diverse materials, right? And like representative stories. And that's important. I'm not saying that's not important, but that's only one part of it. Like if you are using diverse Mm -hmm. books or representative books, but you're still telling parents this very like U.S. American don't ask questions like don't tell them to do this or that there I could see how there could still be a big disconnect between those that Mm. you know yeah just a disconnect between the provider and the family and then also the common goal is to get the child to communicate and use language and so you need to think about And we need to have research on and just be able to find that research, which we'll get into later with open science, um, Mm -hmm. about what is culturally appropriate. I agree. I think the, you know, shriek from Julie was in place too, like, because the problem is like at core, then our theories and our understanding are very biased. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we know that this is actually representative of, Mm -hmm. you know, the world too? And of course, mm-hmm. the it was very skewed to English and Western, you know, speaking countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we just need to explore that more to find out, like, is this working? Is this what they actually need or not? You know, so mm-hmm. I don't have answers now. We don't have the research out there. But, you know, I have a hunch that we need to explore that in, you know, more places in the world to be able to have a more global, because mm-hmm. I think the assumption in a lot of the literature is that child development in general is universal you know in so many ways but Mm -hmm. what is actually culturally you know specific to that language and culture Mm -hmm. um that is the question that's what I would hope to you know find out eventually and Mm -hmm. for some parts in my research line Mm -hmm. and with your dissertation work were these children who didn't have any sort of diagnosed um difficulties and so they were neurotypical children okay yes because I thought um since we don't have any exploration of this let's just get a sense of what typically looks like um and then the hope is to expand the sample and then have um some kids with developmental language disorder and see how does that differ then and that impacting the communication Mm -hmm. Mm, that would be really, really interesting to know. And speaking of DLD, um, I feel like that's another area where we know what it looks like in standard American English speakers. So that doesn't even cover most of our country. 
like probably less than half of it. We know what DLD looks mm-hmm. like in in a subset of speakers from this from the US who speak SAE. Um what does DLD look like in Arabic? So also hasn't been explored much. Um there have been a few early career researchers have, who have been doing that um research there's Dr. Zuhaina Taha and she looked at it in Palestinian Arabic speakers um but I think there is similarity where there are more the grammatical syntactic um challenges that they have but because it's language based I think it'll be important to explore that and see so what are some signs that you could look for um to be able to see how it looks like uh but I would say it's probably similar challenges, but the form of how it's manifesting is going to look different across Mm -hmm. different languages. But we Mm -hmm. definitely need much more research on that. Uh, Yeah, I'm wondering if, uh, like, I'm just, this is just coming from my personal experience with my family again, but I'm wondering if there is kind of that reluctance to share that your child, you're concerned about your child's development Because I think there are certain perspectives that might make parents not want to share that they're concerned about their child's development. So I know with my family, there's a lot of shame, like a lot of disability shame still um, just in like Egyptian culture. So I wonder too how much that impacts, you know, parents or even I think moms are usually the brunt of it. Like, oh, if something happen is going on with your child, that's probably because mom did something wrong during the pregnancy. And I'm not saying this is a general thing. I've just noticed yeah. that it can be um, it can just be a thought that thought pattern that's present. Um, so I'm wondering, too, like if you've seen that that can be a limiting factor and how much parents disclose that you know, I do have concerns with my child or are you seeing that that kind of thinking is on its way out and there's a more accepting thinking coming in of neurodiversity? But, yeah. uh, it depended on the context that I was in. So in the schools, mm-hmm. I think the kids were um, the ones who would come to the clinic were probably kids who also had like more severe challenges. So at this point, mm-hmm. They were already like identified and have been going through therapy for some time or mm-hmm. like it's obvious where the parents are have accepted it at this point and mm-hmm. they're older now because they're in the school. So um, there's that. But just like from personal experiences with friends and people I knew um, mm-hmm. when they're younger, it's always harder. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's always hard also as like being a friend or family friend of someone and then as an SLP, you can start to sense like, uh oh, like something is probably not like going on like as it should with the language. And then you want to be respectful, but also like it's a hard yeah. place to be in. But I've yeah. seen people like being concerned and not like, but I think it's typical. I, I wonder like if that's something that happens, you know, wherever mm-hmm. where moms don't want to accept, you know, that there's something wrong with their, you know, precious kid and that's mm-hmm. totally valid and fair. I think from a, I don't know, I can be biased because I worked, you know, in the special education system. I think people are more accepting of it now. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it differs like across socioeconomic level and like what you're exposed to. 
but there definitely is like this cultural, you know, people worry like, you know, as if it's a bad mm. thing and like, you right. That's a secret. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. Like I, yeah. I'm, and I'm, I'm thinking personally about this. Cause I'm just thinking about when my brother was getting a diagnosis, going through that, getting that process of going through and getting a diagnosis of ASD and oh, my poor mother at the time, like looking back, I'm just thinking from her like church community and family, even there, she was just getting bombarded with questions of, well, were you sick when you were pregnant? Were, did you fall when you were pregnant? Like, what what did you do kind of? And it wasn't anything nasty or mean, but it just was a lot of questions like, oh, you know, we noticed your son doesn't talk. Is it because he got really sick or like, did he just all these crazy theories that we now know aren't valid. Um, but I, I just remember looking back, like I, I can just remember her going through this. And then now me being here, I can kind of think back like that must have been really hard and made her really reluctant to, you know, engage with that assessment process or getting services and help because um, she was constantly being asked those questions. So yeah, maybe people want to rationalize, you know, they want mm -hmm. to find like right. there should be here straightforward reason, you know, mm -hmm. and <laughs> for them, it's easier to say like, she did something and that's why this happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. Yeah. Like, yeah. what can you imagine? She's already like, you know, feeling bad going through the process figuring out what this mm -hmm. looks like and then people are asking all these questions that are kind of blaming her without knowing that they are you know right yeah and again I don't think you ever came from like a nasty or mean place but yeah, yeah. just a, it's just a, <laughs> I just think that's such a cultural difference that does impact impact like bilingual research and services because that is how someone is interacting in their community at the moment someone should take that on like as a qualitative research line you know thinking about the society that'd be so interesting so, I know yeah. <laughs> yeah that would be really interesting actually Julie I know you also had a question about dialects and Arabic oh, yes so I did have a question about so because Arabic has so many dialects I was just curious how you uh take in that into account into your research or are you just focused on specific Lebanese Arabic speakers in your research? Yes, that's a good um, point of distinction to make, I guess, mm -hmm. for whoever's not familiar with Arabic. As you said, we have standard Arabic that is spoken across all the Arab countries. This is our literate language. We use it for reading and writing. Um, and you can use it in formal situations such as giving a speech on TV or like in the UN or something like that, or, you know, the news reporters would use that standard form. But um, the spoken dialect differs by region. So Egyptian Arabic would be different than Lebanese Arabic, than Syrian Arabic, and so on. So in my dissertation, I looked at um, Lebanese Arabic. But even within Lebanese Arabic, there are dialects. <laughs> so I was looking mm -hmm. at people in the capital in Beirut, the capital of mm -hmm. Lebanon. But I bet you, like, if we were to go to the north or to the south or to, you know, the mm -hmm. west or whatever, then you're going to see um, many other um, dialects, too. Mm -hmm. So we do have that dialectal variation even within dialects of Arabic, mm -hmm. um, which makes the research 
search interesting and I think also can be confusing for people when you use the word Arabic because then which one you know Mm -hmm. right (laughs) yeah you need to like focus on the dialects right Mm -hmm. yeah I I always think about when I start thinking about Arabic dialects I always think about Moroccan Arabic because that I even like my Arabic's pretty broken but I can understand okay. But if I ever interact with somebody from Morocco, which doesn't happen often, <laughs> but when I interact with somebody from Morocco, they're speaking Moroccan Arabic. I'm like, I have this is a whole different language to me almost. So it's super different, sounds different, um, to the point where I really don't understand it. So that's got to make another layer of complexity for bilingual research. <laughs> yeah, it, it is impacted geographically, like you said. So, like for um it depends on where you are so Mm -hmm. the further you're going away from Lebanon the harder the accent will be and the dialect Mm -hmm. to understand so you're right like there's more Mm -hmm. of the North African Arabic and then there's more of the Levantine region like with Mm -hmm. kind of like Syrian and and Lebanese being more similar to so even within the spoken dialects there can be ranges of how similar or different they are I know you also have an interest in dyslexia. Can you talk about that? Mm. Yes. Um, when I was at UGA, um, we they offered a dyslex- graduate certificate in dyslexia. So I was just curious. I was like, oh, okay, let's take that on. And um, it ended up turning into a research interest of mine. Um, and currently, um, in my postdoc, I'm with Dr. Suzanne Adloff at the University of South Carolina, and her focus um, of research is on children with dyslexia and DLZ. Um, but I'm definitely interested in, if I were kind of to summarize my research interests, I'm very much interested in the early language environment. What are some factors there that can help language development? And what are signs that we could see of language disorders early on? And how does that impact the children's language outcomes later? And when we think about language outcomes, that also includes reading and writing for me. So that's where my dyslexia interest comes in. Um, So now um, we're looking kind of at the home literacy environment and how that can impact also um, children's reading outcomes later on. Uh, but I am interested, as yeah, you said, in dyslexia, and <clears throat> knowing that I know these different orthographies too, it would be interesting to see how that also impacts, you know, dyslexia and reading and writing in these populations. That is not something I dabbled in yet, but just like a shelved interest for maybe later in the future. <laughs> yeah, that seems really important if you're looking at. Um... Arabic speakers and potentially down the line, maybe, you know, what DLD may look like in Arabic and how to, how to support that in the home. Um, The reading and writing piece is a natural like next step almost of um, how a language disorder, how you'll see the language disorder. And at least here, what I've noticed is some of the kids who have maybe a more mild language disorder, 
they can skate by until they're in third grade, fourth grade, when the reading and writing demands are much higher. And then the teacher starts to say, mm, they can't really, they're struggling to write this paragraph and organize their ideas. They're struggling to use all this complex vocabulary that we're using in class. I'm not sure what's going on. And then it, the DLD is maybe revealed as well. And so that would be really interesting to see in Arabic speakers. And like you said, with the different orthographies, I'm sure, you know, it just mm -hmm. needs to be studied in Arabic. We can't, we, there's no way we could translate, you know, our English, at least from my, from my mm -hmm. knowledge, there's no way we could translate what we know about English dyslexia into a language that uses completely different writing system. Right. Mm -hmm. I would assume. Yeah. Like the manifestation and the signs that you could look for would probably look different. I'm sure like the neurological base would um, be the same, you know, what caused mm. it. Uh, but then for us as SLPs, this is what we look at, the language. So I think um, this would be good clues for us to get a better sense of, you know, uh, language disorder. And you're right, mm -hmm. like how these kids with DLD get missed easily until mm -hmm. if they have dyslexia, then that's where it starts showing too. Oh, because they're having these reading and writing problems, that's where they're getting caught on later on, which is, you know, challenging. And if they were caught earlier, then they could have had support for more years versus getting them later on in life. Ooh, Arabic it must be hard because the characters, like the um, what's the word? Graphemes in Arabic look. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. they look different individual, but then when you string them into words, they look they look different. They don't like a like in English, an A looks the same if you're writing it by itself or in a word, unless maybe you're using cursive. But in Arabic, the letters change once you put them into words. So I never learned good. how to I never learned how to read or write Arabic. I know how to write my name. That's it. But um, nice. but yeah, it's a, that must be another layer of uh hard. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point that visually the letters do change. Um, we one thing that people used to do in school kind of to support you is just show you that um, it gets out its hands and then it connects to the other letters. Oh, um, so, cute. Yeah. <laughs> so there are ways to help with that, but um, mm -hmm. definitely a lot to explore there for sure. Mm, interesting, too. And and I've heard dyslexia described um at least in a in an english speaking context as very phonologically based too like the core deficit is yeah, even though you'll see it come out in the letters and the spelling the core deficit is this phonological difficulty and um i know it's you know never super clear cut with every kid that you see uh but i wonder too thinking about like arabic phonology if that would be another aspect of trying to figure out um, how to identify maybe these early screening measures that you could develop to try to identify kids who may be at risk for dyslexia later on, that's also going to look really different in Arabic versus in, in English, just with a, such a different sound system. Exactly. Like, because it's a different sound structure, whatever you're going to come up with needs to, you know, work for that sound structure. So that's where you need all these new assessments and, ways to explore that so that's why like 
as an SLP, I was so burnt out. I'm like, okay, so I need to come up with all of this. Like, this is Mm. a lot. And honestly, Mm -hmm. one practice that people would do, which was not like great, but because we do have, like, we do speak English too, they would bring this assessment tool that was standardized for American speakers. And then they would use it there just to get a benchmark. And Mm -hmm. honestly, like as a progress monitoring tool that might not be the worst thing because you can see like where they were performing and then after the intervention, mm-hmm. like where are they performing on this tool? But you can't get, you know, um, you can't compare it to the mean or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a huge need for assessments. And that was my interest for some time too. I was planning on doing some assessment um, tool for my dissertation, but then methodologically, I realized that I'll probably need a huge sample and I wanted to graduate. So I shifted gears. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Smart choice. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's move on to open science, your second big research interest. Um for the clinicians that are listening or people who aren't in the research world, could you explain what open science is and why it's important? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's actually how Brittany and I know each other from our similar open science interest. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so there are currently many issues with the way we do science. There have been studies that were trying to replicate what we know in the research literature already. So some scientists tried to replicate the studies that were done in the field of psychology. And they found that when they tried to replicate it, um, the effect sizes were lower. And basically, the studies were not replicating, even though the scientists were trying to do the same thing. So that raised question marks and people were worried. So why are we not getting the same results or for following technically what they did? And we also hear a lot about these scientists who published fake findings or um, were lying in the way they were doing something in their lab. I would say that's not super common. That happens, but it's not the biggest mm-hmm. concern. But all that to say is the way we're doing science right now is not ideal. It's far from ideal. There are many challenges with that. And as clinicians, as and for me personally, too, as a clinician who worked in a developing country, I was in Lebanon, I was at a public university, I did not have access to any of the research articles that were not open access. And I remember I was writing a research paper, and I had to cite whatever I had access to. So I couldn't read the ones that were behind a paywall. And you can imagine then, you know, the dissemination of knowledge and whatever you're producing. So that's also one of the barriers. We don't have access. We have all this science and people can't read it, especially the people who need it the most who are actually on the ground doing the work with the clients Mm -hmm. that we're producing the literature for. Mm -hmm. So because of all of these issues, um, there has been a suggestion to do science in a different way. And that movement or way of changing the way we do science is called open science. You can think of it as an umbrella term that includes many um, practices under it. But basically, the common goal is for us to be more transparent in the way we do science and for it to be reproducible. So if someone were to read and to try to do whatever you did, they should be able to reproduce um, the study 
and access is a big piece too. So being able to access the finding to people who need to read um, the research. And that's one of the reasons like we have this research to practice gap that people talk about a lot is clinicians are not able to access the findings, especially if they're not affiliated with the university. So that's why it can take up to 17 years for whatever was found in the research to actually become, you know, translated in practice. Mm. That's kind of like what we saw with the science of reading. Like people were writing and researching and publishing about the science of reading, what, like 30 years ago. And it's now just, I'm hearing it way more often and more talked about like this year than last year. So what a gap. Takes a lot of time and it's frustrating because I'm sure like for scientists who are really doing this to help people, that's not the goal, you know, the, our mm-hmm. hope is not for publishers to just get this profit and mm-hmm. like, yay, publishers, no, we want right. just to read this and actually do it and practice and benefit the, you know, clients and whoever needs this service. And open science also relates to this equity piece too. Can you talk more about that? Yes, um, that is one of the things that made me really happy because I had that interest in open science I knew it was important but then when I was able to make that connection I was like this makes complete sense (laughs) for what I'm doing Um, but um, speaking back to what we were talking about the lack of diversity um, issues with also access to be able to produce research so in many other countries people don't have as much resources um to recruit participants and to take all that time to collect this data so if we were to use open science practices this way we can be more inclusive and open to people from across the globe and then if i have a data set that i collected here someone um i don't know in egypt can take it up and do run analyses and publish a paper on it um and this way i'm benefiting the globe in general, instead of just the sample that I collected with my data. And that's just one example with the use of data. But one of the things that I'm really um, excited about too is at Stanford, Dr. Michael Frank, he is doing these large scale research projects and I might be attributing it to him only and that's what I know, but I'm sure there's a whole group that does that too, but they have um, a research called like many babies. So what they're doing is they're bringing these labs from all around the world and they're providing the protocol and the material. And then we have these huge samples from across the globe and then they're running the analyses, which is amazing because then you have representation and you're more confident Mm -hmm. in whatever findings you're getting. Mm -hmm. And that's one great use of use of open science to be able to create research literature that is more representative of the globe Mm -hmm. versus one part of it oh it's so important because I keep hearing Mm -hmm. in my classes too about the reproducibility crisis we have all this Mm -hmm. research that people aren't able to replicate as you mentioned too and it really makes you question um, the credibility of the sources that we're citing and that's not a good place to be in because we want 
or I feel like I want research to be scientific research that's been published and peer reviewed to be a pretty trustworthy place to go to Mm -hmm. try to figure out clinically, is this something that I should use or not? And with the child that's in front of me and that last part with the child that's in front of me is something where if our samples aren't big enough, which is maybe one part of it, um, you're certainly not getting a representative sample if you're already working with a small sample, which is often like the children of people who live in university towns or the children of like the professors at the university where the research Mm -hmm. is being run. Um, So yeah, I just love this idea and I'm so supportive of this idea of, of open science and trying to decrease barriers uh, in so many ways, barriers in terms of the clinicians accessing the research, barriers in terms of researchers accessing other researchers' work and data sets. Mm -hmm. There are so many unnecessary barriers in place and a lot of them just for um, the sake of publishers to make a profit. So, yeah. I mean, at like $35 a pop, (laughs) <laughs> super lucrative <laughs> to be publishing these articles. And that's a cheap, that's a cheap one. Yeah. 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 With inflation now, it's probably up, right? <laughs> uh. Yeah. And Miriam, can you talk about what open access fees are like on the researchers side too? Yeah, it's, I think that was one of the things that I was also surprised to learn, but even for researchers who spent this time, you know, creating this study, getting the funding for it, running it for I don't know how many years, and then writing the results and disseminating them. So if they were to choose to go the open access route where you don't have a paywall to read the article, it can range. So I know for the ASHA journals, it's around, I'm not 100% sure, but something like in, I don't know, $1,000, $2,000, to publish one article oh my god uh-huh. and then if you go to other journals like I know nature recently had this ridiculous number of around eleven thousand dollars per article what so oh my it, god how can they do that like oh I'm telling you big rasha they are a money making scheme machine because how on earth are you going to say hey scientists in our field to do this research for us but if you want to publish it it's gonna cost you at least like one to two grand sorry we don't make the rules oh wait we do (laughs) and oh my gosh oh that's so frustrating so so frustrating expect them just to use like grant money which is also taxpayer money again to Mm -hmm. oh we'll use your taxpayer money to pay that fee it won't be an issue you're not Mm -hmm. paying it out of pocket you're using the grant that you have you know and Mm -hmm. some researchers don't have that money even so then they can't publish open access yeah and why can't the that makes me so upset because just to assume that you can leave this grant money to the side to pub- pay the publishing fee. And then you- it just makes me think that that grant money could have gone to, you know, provide money for the participants that came to your study exactly. or give money, extra money to the people that worked and the students that worked on your on your research team or provide a scholarship opportunity in some way like that money could be going to something that makes our field more accessible but damn that's so upsetting 
<laughs> and I'm trying like to say that that's not just like Asha too. Like it's the whole mm. publishing business in general. Mm. Like that's what the norm is currently. And that's what we're trying to find a way to shift from that. Mm. Go ahead, Brittany. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say that I think it was a miscon it's a misconception and it's certainly a misconception that i had before starting my phd that um the researchers themselves are making money off of mm-hmm. paywalls and all of these all mm-hmm. of these financial barriers um but that's not at all how it is working it's not like if i publish a novel or someone publishes a novel and then they may get royalties from purchases of that novel it's it's a totally different warped system um mm-hmm. and oh wouldn't that be awesome if we got royalties from oh. our papers <laughs> but yeah it's just it's so there's so many barriers in place and it makes it really inaccessible. So Miriam, you founded CS Disseminate. You co-founded CS Disseminate. Can you talk about CS Disseminate and OpenCSD and what some of those um, those efforts are in our fields to expand open science practices? It happened very, I would say, coincidentally and then, you know, I ended up loving it. Um but I think we can credit to uh, Meredith Harold a lot for kind of bringing us together and helping us um, come together as a group and think about the importance of this and Helen Long too. Um, so they're the ones who did this call for, you know, thinking about open access in our fields. And then myself and Elaine um, Kearney came together with Meredith and Helen and um we started thinking about, you know, there's a problem with open access. There's a problem with accessing research. And Meredith knows that very well from the informed SLP because they need to read all these articles to create those summaries um, that they're creating and do science communication. But, you know, they know that there is this barrier of accessing. Um, So we came together. um, I think it's been like three years now, maybe, or a bit more, um, but we came up with CS Disseminate as a group. And ever since then, it has grown so much and we have amazing active contributing members um, that are uh, a big part of CS Disseminate now. And basically for CS Disseminate, the focus was on helping scientists learn about ways where they can legally share their research without worrying about, you know, copyright and journal policies and all of that. So there are ways to do that. Um, So CS Disseminate focuses on educating scientists on ways to do that so that um, clinicians can read their research. And it's been um, doing good. I think the field has been has resonated with this message and people have heard of the work that we've been doing. and there are plans for next year. I think they're wanting to do, they're wanting to keep that work. I won't like, what if they haven't announced it yet? But anyway, like they're mm-hmm. wanting to keep focusing on self-archiving and helping scientists do that. And then for um, OpenCSD, that is a sister group for CS Disseminate. I'm also involved with OpenCSD. And um, this group focuses on open science in general. 
So focusing on not just access, but also different practices that you could engage in, such as sharing data and so on um, as a scientist. And But I think the mission is kind of the same as for us to have transparent and accessible science within the field. And actually for both groups, we will have like different um, presentations at ASHA and they're always very open to people just joining. So whoever has like a passion for this, they're always welcome to become part of the team. And I think what helps us run is to when whoever is excited about something, they can take a lead on it. And then, you know, just we support each other in keeping that going. Um, mm -hmm. But that's the groups briefly. Yeah, come find us at at the conference. Well, this episode will come out after the conference, but, um, you know, putting it into the, the air kind of, um, great. Well, this has been so great to have you on and I know yeah, I'm you. going to definitely listen to this episode. And one thing I've been reflecting on as you've been talking is, the the privileges I've had as a U.S. American based SLP that I hadn't realized were privileges. That's the nature of certain privileges is that you don't see it right. But hearing you talk about the lack of standardized assessments in Lebanon, and here I am, I'm always like shitting on our standardized assessments here. But I we have like 35 <laughs> to choose from, and I'm like, no, nah, they're not good enough. Like that is a privilege to be able yeah. to like whine about how our many, many test choices are, are maybe, you know, still require some improvement, but um, I'll definitely be reflecting on a lot of this conversation. So thank you so much for your time and uh, sharing all these ideas and we're excited to keep up with you and in the future. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. It was so nice to meet you and talk to you today. Nice to meet you too. And that was really fun. It's always nice to, you know, not a lot of people care about what you're doing research-wise. So I'm always happy to talk about it. So thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Miriam. The views and information expressed on coffee, tea, and three SLPs are solely host and guest opinions are based on clinical experiences. This is for entertainment purposes only.